This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Emma Goswell in conversation with Skin. Virgin Radio Pride. Hi, I'm Emma Goswell and I am so excited to bring you Comfortable in Her Skin, a conversation with Skin on Virgin Radio Pride. Now, when I told all of my friends who I was chatting to, and I'm talking gay, straight, male, female, non-binary, whatever, they all went, oh my God, I love her. That's true. Music Week gave her the Inspirational Artist Award and described her as one of the most iconic and unforgettable stars of her generation. I agree. Along with her band, Skunk and Nancy, she sold over five million records in about as many years. She single-handedly redefined what it means to be a rock chick. She's unashamedly queer. She is definitely here. She is skin. (laughs) (laughs) What what a lovely introduction. I'm going to have to live up to it now. Well, from now on, anything could happen over the next hour or so. We can just Mm. let the conversation go where it needs to go. So one of the things that we loved about you and Skunk and Nancy back in the day was that you were so political, you know, and you did write songs about politics. You did write songs about race. You expressed your anger. Uh, would you say you're still as angry and political today? Sounds do you know, like it. I think, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, do you know, uh, people will say to me, why are you political? I will say to them, because I'm from Brixton. <laughs> you know, everything is political. You can make yeah. everything political. How are you yeah. supposed to raise, be raising an underfunded, you know, forgotten by the Tories during the yuppie 80s. How how are you supposed to just walk around and pretend like your childhood was easy and your childhood, all the things that you had to put up with, some were, you know, cultural, but a lot of it was um, political um, because of the decisions that were made by the, by the government and you weren't part of it and you weren't seen as being relevant or, we kept, you, you know, I think that in Brixton, we just felt like everyone just, nobody cared. The government just didn't care about us. We were kind of forgotten in many ways. Mm-hmm. In the inner cities, we were forgotten. Um, and we had two Brixton riots at the end, you know, because of it, because of, of police, police abuse, um, abusing their powers. So, um, that's why I'm political because, you know, I had riots outside my doorstep when I was a child when I, and again, when I was a teenager. So if you're going to walk around and be blinded by that, then that that's kind of quite sad because as a songwriter, you have to be aware of everything that's in your peripheral vision and everything that's sitting right in front of you. Um, and I don't think it's for everybody to be the political. I love that some songs are just about partying. <laughs> we need those songs, right? You know, yeah. imagine you... You had that friend that all they did was talk politics. So we have lots of different types of songs, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like a working class girl from Brixton who's got a bit of a gob. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's a great quote. You put that on your CV. <laughs> well, I think, um, well, you have definitely. And I feel like I, have, I feel like a lot of women, they grow into themselves, don't they? So with the, yeah. the, the title of this program is Comfortable in Her Skin. I feel like you're a lot more comfortable in your skin now because, and I'm going to introduce um your book now, It Takes Blood and Guts. I've been avidly reading that, your biography with Lucy O'Brien. And there's a really poignant sentence in it about your childhood. And it describes you the way you think of yourself. And you say this, I felt ugly and invisible, a painfully skinny tomboy with humongous lips and hair that never grew. <laughs> so considering that you went from that to then being a model and, you know, and doing everything yeah. else that you achieved. So you obviously had a very low opinion of yourself. I was I was a real ugly duckling. You know, I I didn't have anything. I didn't know anything about anything. And I was in this very small, tight community in Brixton. And, um, you know, women had certain roles and were supposed to do certain things. And I always felt awkward. I felt awkward now when I look back because of my sexuality, because I realised... 
I didn't know what being gay was. I never heard the term till mm. I was 15 years old. Um, I was in a very sheltered religious family. Um, and I think that sense that I didn't know and didn't fit in was the gayness. Um, and then I think that I was, I was very determined to leave. And I think I felt quite awkward about that too, because I, you know, I was obsessed about Top of the Pops and I used to see, I used to watch Top of the Pops and thinking, who are all these people? Look what they're doing. And I, I just saw it so positively. I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to be like Blondie. I want to be like, you know, all these people that I was seeing on, on, the, on, on television and in, on, in music videos and stuff like this, this kind of surreal view of what people were really like. And I didn't know anyone like that. So I knew that there was this other world out there. And I, you know, and so I, I mean, I guess, you know, I don't know why it is, but I never really got compliments in my kind of community as a child growing up. You know, I never thought I was, you know, clever or pretty or useful in any shape or form. And it wasn't until I, you know, I got to 13 and I made this decision that I was going to do, I was in charge of myself. And I realized that at 13, that I don't have to do what my teachers told me to do. I can actually do something with my life. Were you a rebel then, at school? Uh, I was. I I had one friend who was the school bully, and one friend that was the, the head teacher, who was <sighs> who was a head girl. So right. I had like a devil and an angel on my shoulders, and in the end, my best friend became the angel um, because I didn't like the way that the, I was never bullied, but I didn't like the way that you know she was talking to and treating other other girls, and I was like, mm, I don't want to be part of that. I want to be part of the one who's intelligent and brilliant and beautiful and and exciting. Um, and then it, when I, I remember getting to 24 and I, it, I suddenly realized I wasn't bad looking <laughs> and I guess I, I had a growth spurt and I, I was like, I looked like a child until I was about 22, 23. I was just a very tall, skinny child. And at 24, I kind of grew into my looks and started saying yes to modeling and, and other things like that. Um, and that was the beginning of my feeling comfortable. And actually looking in the mirror and going, why do you think, why are you always criticizing yourself? You look fine. You look like everyone else wants to look, you know? So it took a while. And that's interesting, isn't it? That it's interesting that you were in the middle of this, what it sounds like as well from reading your book, quite an interesting and very colorful and cultural scene in Brixton and your granddad running that underground um, nightclub. Yeah. yeah, it sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun. And you had all these musical influences around you. And then how on earth do you go from having all that sort of musical influences, you're into your soul and gospel and jazz, to then becoming a rock star? I mean, it's just unfathomable to me how, how you well, did it. It's interesting because on reflection, you know, I'm doing all those things. I'm in that community. Um, and on reflection, I'm very influenced that com in, by that community in that world, you know, the nightclub and my uncles playing drums and all this music that was around me. But I was also in a very, I was in a very strict childhood. You know, I was, I was, there was a lot of things I wasn't allowed to do. Most of the, the, the word I heard the most was no, you know, Jamaican parents mm. are quite strict. I mean, mm. a lot of people, a lot of us will re relate to that, especially religious parents, you know, um, so I, I felt like I wasn't really kind of part of it. It was happening around me, but I wasn't really allowed to be part of it because it was naughty in some ways. Mm. Um, but I, I, I just love reggae and I love reggae. I just can't sing it. And it was really as simple as that. It was and the thing about reggae, which I love. I love the groove and I love the sexiness and the chilled vibes. Um, but I'm not that. 
I'm not chilled at all. I mean, I'm not, um, I'm quite angsty. And especially when I was growing up, I was very frustrated. There was a lot of things I wanted to and couldn't do. So I didn't feel chilled and I didn't feel relaxed and I didn't want to make this of music that I didn't know how to sing, you know. Um, and, but I remember watching Blondie and just thinking, God, that looks a lot more like fun, you know, and watching rock bands look more like fun because I was just attracted to two things. One that was nothing like I grew up with. So it was all of rock music was this alien sound that everybody I knew hated in my community. They just disliked the guitars. Um, and that was very attractive to me. And then two, the thing about rock music is that you really get your emotions out. It's very authentic. It's not like love stories and everything's nice and wonderful and everybody's sexy and everyone just wants to party. It's kind of, there's a lot of uh, anger and violence. I was attracted to guitars because it was just angsty and aggressive. And that's how I felt when I saw those people sing. I was like, that's what I want to do. That's what I felt. I love the riffiness and the guitars and the attitude, loads and loads and loads of attitude. Um, and it didn't really bother me that I didn't see anybody like me in there. That just made me think, well, I'm going to be the first. I'm going to be special because I've always wanted to be special. And you were the first, really. So how was it? Because, I mean, I've got a friend who said he went to go, I think he went to Download Festival. Yes. And he said you were the, not only were the only woman on stage, you were the only black person on stage. Well, you know, I think the rock music scene is, you know, the roots of it are black. You know, it comes from mm-hmm. blues. It comes from gospels. I mean... You, you speak to any rock singer from, you know, the Beatles to Rolling Stones, and they're all of influences like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and all these mm-hmm. amazing blues singers, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix. So the roots of it and everything is black. It just got kind of in some ways just wandered off and taken over and this, this attitude that actually it's not black music. Well, really it is. Um, so it's a bit of an oxymoron. You know, we were always... Um, the odd ones out in many ways. Um, and in the beginning, that was a quite difficult thing because uh, the, a lot of people in the industry just didn't see it. They couldn't see it and they couldn't understand it because it's so alien to them, you know, and they saw rock music as something that was theirs. And as a black woman, I was always being pushed into singing soul and jazz and this kind of R&B thing. And that just didn't, so, so it doesn't just, it wasn't me. It's not my culture. It's not my... When I say culture of me, it's like my teenage years were rock years and indie years, and 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 um, and I it, I think in a, those early days the industry saw it as a negative, but the people loved us because mm. I think that people love things that are different and interesting, and as long as you're good, they're gonna like it. If you're bad, then it's like you know you're you represent your whole race. <laughs> Do you think you accepted though? Because I did read in the book that you had criticism from you know people within your own community saying. Why are you playing this music that is the music of our oppressors? Like, this is white yeah. music. Yeah, you know, we've had some negativity from black people as well, you know, people of colour as well as people, you know, it was really different times. And, you know, there were black people there who couldn't understand why I was singing rock music because they didn't know rock music and didn't know the roots of it and didn't really get it. Um, I, I remember when Skunk and Nancy had a bit of a split, um, the South London press celebrated it. Because they just thought that, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. And we had that attitude a lot in lots of different ways of this is not what you're supposed to be doing. You're out of your lane. You're out of, you know, your corner. You're out of your genre. Um, And we, I guess, you know, do you know what it is? It's like I felt so comfortable in my skin, as you said, that I'd struggled for many years to get to that position of being a lead singer of a rock band with my 
singing these songs and doing it, you know, my own music with my with my guys, that when I got to that point, it felt so comfortable. I was like, finally, I'm leasing the band. We're writing our songs, we're playing, we're traveling the world. This is exactly where I've wanted to be. Mm. Um, and when you hit that level of comfortability in yourself, it's so satisfying and you feel very um, at one with yourself in your situation when you know where you're supposed to be and you're right there. Um, and everybody else, you just think, oh, they just don't understand. They don't get it, you know. And it's like I, I wasn't about to change what I do because everybody else felt uncomfortable with me doing what I would do because I felt very comfortable and I was super happy to be in that position. Mm. And when you're there, you don't really worry about what everybody else is thinking because they don't know how comfortable you are and how happy you are. And I think the the root of, you know, people's negativity is they want you to stop what you're doing because they are uncomfortable with it. Um, and their way of dealing with their uncomfortability is to get in your way and make you feel bad about yourself so that they can feel better about themselves because they feel uncomfortable. This is Comfortable in Her Skin. I'm Emma Goswell and I've got skin from Skunk and Nancy with me. Do you think your sexuality had any part to play in the fact that you wanted to be you know, so out there and so different and doing a, a genre of music that no one else in your culture was necessarily doing. Um, you felt comfortable being the outsider because you felt I mean, an outsider anyway because of your sexuality. Yeah, I think sexuality made it was a massive, I think much more in hindsight, I can see how it was a massive influence in those days because I think that as a woman and, you know, a cute girl, um, male press and there were more male press at the time than female press mm. they could write about you if you're like if they thought you were hot i remember one journalist saying that that's how he judged female music mm. and then suddenly i'm in this position and i i we signed a record deal when i was 26 years old so i'd had a whole life you know i'd trained mm. i'd gone to university i'd left that job you know i was very happy and very by 26 and by that signing of that record deal you know, I was a grown ass woman. I was a grown up, you know, um, and I was very secure in my identity. I was very secure with my sexuality and my looks. And, you know, I was very comfortable. And I think that, that, that the male press found that difficult in two ways. One, I wasn't flirting with them at all. I wasn't giving them kind of a sexy vibes. I was talking about music and lyrics and songs in the same way that if they were interviewing a guy, that's how a guy would talk to them. Um, and two, then that made them feel uncomfortable because all of their usual things, they have a lot of power as well because they, you want them to write about you. So um, so that, that threw that other thing. And then, you know, I'm also black and then I'm also odd because I'm a black girl singing rock music. And, and I think that a lot of the male press at the time did, just didn't know what to do with me. None of the stuff that they usually do and, and the ways that they normally talk to lead singers of band, none of that worked. Um, mm. And I, they just felt I'm very uncomfortable, especially but, sexuality, because, you know, a black woman's sexuality, I mean, they were, if I was a hot, black, sexy girl, then they know what to do with that, you know? Um, but I wasn't even doing that because I wasn't interested in sexuality. I was literally just talking about music and the songs and, you know, in the same way that a band full of white boys would talk. Um, yeah. And you'd and think so, a music journalist would be able to cope with that, wouldn't you, really? But, yeah, so. and, you know, I think people forget how homophobic those times were. Yeah. You know, I think that... A lot of the people now are standing on our shoulders and sometimes you think they're standing on our shoulders and kicking, kicking us in the face at the same time. But it's, it's, it was a very homophobic time and a lot of, it was very unusual for girls especially to come out of the closet. 
Um, and if they did, they were kind of like, oh, let's have a threesome then. It was that we'll have two girls and then I'll watch or something. You know, it was that sexual. Oh, like when Britney snogged Madonna on the yeah. music awards. And yeah. yeah. Like fake lesbian kisses. Fake yeah. lesbian kisses and, and all mm. that kind of lipstick lesbians and all that. And and so it was um it was a very much more homophobic time. So it wasn't a positive thing or an, you know, it wasn't something that you lauded or wanted to talk about. Um and it switched a lot of music journalists off and the industry you know, a lot of people were like, mm, they're gay, they're never going to be successful, they're never going to be famous and never going to make us money. Um, that was the attitude towards gay people in the music industry. But that's why it was very brave what you did, because I think you made a conscious decision, didn't you? Didn't your, your manager actually turn around and said, well, you can either stay in the closet and you might sell more records or you could come out and you won't sell as many records. Yeah, it was, I never got into a band to sell more records and be successful. And that sounds like a very strange, naive thing to say now. Because of course, if I look back now, of course I wanted to be successful, but mm. that was not my my first thing. I wanted to make music and I wanted to be in control of my band and I wanted to travel the world and sing songs. Mm. Um, and everything else was a byproduct of, of wanting that with all of my heart. You know, I never got into a band to be famous. Um, and so I didn't really care. I was naive. I didn't really care. I was like, well, whatever. You know, we were quite arrogant in that. We, we you know, in order to get signed in anyway, we, we had to be better than everybody else. But um, it was, I think it was by that time, I'd, as I say, I was 26 years old and I'd met some very unhappy, very famous gay people. And mm. I was very aware that I do not want that for my life. And they were miserable. They were mm. absolutely miserable because they weren't out. They weren't out of the closet. And there was just so much lying and pretense and always being aware of not getting caught out because some of them were like really obviously gay um, and they were protected by the local company. And I, I remember thinking, this is just too much work. This is just way too much. And I went out with one of them. So I was very aware of like, wow, oh my God, I can't live my life like this. I don't want to leave at separate times, don't talk to each other for too long, uh, you know, yeah, we're just friends. And um, and I almost went back into the closet for that person. Well, I did go back into the closet for Gosh. that person. And that taught me a big lesson that I kind of already knew because I was already out by then. Um, but I, I just think it's in, for me, it was happiness or not happiness. You want to be happy and, and, and be authentic and be the real you and feel happy in your own skin and feel like comfortable and and I, I, I had this very strong sense of like I've done nothing wrong it's not about me it's about you I had this very simplistic way of describing it to myself imagine if like somebody steps you with like their you know racism homophobia transphobia all of that kind of stuff right it's like they have all these problems imagine that problems all those problems is like a big boulder a big massive stone hmm. and when they steps you with all that ignorance what they're doing is they're handing it to you they're giving you that weight for you to carry and put on your shoulders and my men that's how it felt to me and my mentality was like oh no you can have that back i'm not having that because i feel hmm. great i feel light as a feather i'm really happy in this situation being in this band and i'm not going to carry your weight so you go fix yourself because i'm fine and that was my 90s mentality that I think in some ways things are a lot more complex now, but it still kind of works. But it still took you a little while to come out, did it? Because there's no. usually a, quite a process of uh, coming out. 
No, I didn't. I didn't come out. I actually don't believe in coming out. I think it's mm. the most ridiculous thing that we're forced to do. But no, I didn't come out. I didn't think about it. And I did a, um, I was just gay. I was just mm. openly, obviously gay. And I remember a journalist looked at me from the enemy, I think, and said, so what does your boyfriend think about music? And I said, boyfriend, you mean girlfriend? Yeah. And that was it. That's the, you know, I didn't come out to my parents. I didn't, I've never sat down and said to somebody, apart from me, my manager, I'm gay, you know? Mm. Um, I just lived my life and I left it for people to work it out or not work it out. Um, and I still have that mentality. Uh, so yeah, I've never, I never came out of the closet. I never made any big statements. I was just, I just, you know, was just me at all times. Yeah, and that's a much better way, really. Just you know, pass the salt. Oh, by the way, I'm identified as being a lesbian. Um, but I did like the story in your book about you turning up um, at your mother's house with um, like half the Pride Parade from um, <laughs> Stockwell Park. Was it one year? Well, an idiot. I mean, I remember um, it was it was uh, Gay Pride when it had moved to Brockwell Park, and mm. me and my mates went. And I was like, oh, my mum lives around the corner. Let's go and say hello to my mum. And they were like, no, I don't think we should do. Let's just go to a club. Let's just go to Brooks and Fridge. And I'm like, nah, she's just around the corner. And I was determined. And I brought all my friends to my mum. So I said, mum, we're here. And my mum was like, you've been to that nasty, dotty party in Brockwell Park, isn't it, aren't it? And I was just like, uh... Uh, and she's like, come on, move from the You know, she was like, kick me out from her doorstep. And I never talked to her for two years after that. I was just like, you make your choice. And I wow. think in the end, she was like, I lose my daughter or I don't lose my daughter. And I think that, you know, in the end, she was just like, you know, let's move on. So she came around. Yeah. She, no, she'd never come around to the idea. She just mm. um, is. My mum's not, it's weird to say that my mum is very, um, she accepts people who they are at all times if she likes them. And if she doesn't like people, it's not because they're gay, it's because she doesn't like them. So, like, for instance, I was at my mum's house and these two guys came and knocked to the door, said, oh, hi, and they were chatting away, chatting away. And afterwards, I said to my mum, I said, I didn't know you knew any gay people. She goes, I don't know if they're gay or not. They're just really nice. And she literally had no idea that these two yeah. boys were a gay couple. Um, and she's kind of like that. It's, it's an old school. It's like... It is the religious thing. So she believes that, you know, she's not supposed to be accepting. But if you walk into a house with me, she'll like look after you, cook for you, do everything for you, doesn't care. Mm. Um, and I think there's something in that, you know, there's a religious thing that, that teaches that you're supposed to behave in one way. And she knows that. Um, but then, you know, she doesn't really adhere to it. You know, she doesn't, you know, step in that way. Um, at our church, there's a, the, the organ players, out gay and everyone in the church loves him so there's this dichotomy between how people are supposed to behave and how they actually behave you know this is this kind of um weird rules around it now what about when you go back to jamaica you i don't... haven't been to jamaica since i was a teenager actually. oh okay yeah. yeah no i know i went a lot when we were kids and when we were teenagers and then i got into an adulthood and haven't really been back I'm, I was yeah. actually planning to go back before COVID and that hasn't happened. So I'm, I'm due. You're due. I've never been, so I can't comment. But certainly from everything I read, it's a not very tolerant place for LGBTQ plus people. Yeah, it's on the outside, yeah. But then there's huge communities of gay people all over Jamaica. Mm. You know, um, it's, 
outwardly, you know, there's some horrific stories and a lot of negativity. And I would say also just to, in terms of Jeeves being female in Jamaica can be a very, very difficult thing to be. Mm. Um, I mean, I think Jamaicans have some incredible, lovely, it's a wonderful, incredible culture, but there's parts to it that you're like, no, no, not accepting that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, probably most cultures around the world can say that there's there's parts of it they love and then there's parts that they're like, no, <laughs> you know, I'm not. Yeah. That's awful, you know. So I think there's that. There's a kind of stuff that makes me very happy about having a Jamaican culture and there's stuff that makes me very sad. And so, yeah, I um, I haven't been back and, and I don't think Jamaica's, I mean, I have friends that are gay that, are, that have moved there for the whole of, for, for the whole of COVID and are having a wonderful time. But then I've had other friends that were there and had to stay in their hotel all the time. Mm. So, you know, I think it's a, a complex and a confusing place. And I think, yes, there's huge swathes of hom homophobia in Jamaican culture and in a lot of other black cultures. But then, you know, I see those huge swathes of homophobia in just about every culture I've ever been in, including the English. That's for sure. Do you, do you feel Jamaican? Because I, I did read in the book, you said you went back, if you were feeling Jamaican, then he went there and thought, well, I can't speak the patois here. It's totally different. <laughs> or maybe I'm not really Jamaican. So. I know. I know. It was, I had a whole identity thing the first time I went there because I, mm. you know, we thought we were little Jamaicans and we hadn't realised that our patois had be, was an English patois, which was mm. different from a Jamaican patois, you know? It, this is how language works. It evolves and it develops. And in England, we have different re relevances. So we went back. I mean, I went back there thinking, yeah, I'm going back home. It's my culture because I'd heard my parents and all the people in my community talk in that way. And when I went back, I realized I was like the alien English child that didn't understand anything. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a real shock. It was because, I mean, we were British black kids. And so in those days, in the 70s and the 80s, being black, you were seen, you were not seen as being part of British culture. You were seen as guests mm. or immigrants or whatever. Um, first generation, first, we were the first generation of black kids that were born in England. And then you go to Jamaica and you realize that they see you as English. So Jamaicans, black Jamaicans see you as English more than white English people saw us as English. So it was, um, yeah, I definitely felt like I'm going to have to work something out here because I don't feel comfortable anywhere. And I think that that's just one of the sad things about British culture in the way that it doesn't make us feel welcome. And so we have to kind of forcefully carve our way, whether they like it or not. Do you still feel that? Do you still feel that alienated? 100%, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think things are better. Absolutely, things are better. But there's a kind of deep-rooted institutionalised racism in this country that... You know, you, you're still dealing with, and I think things are way better than they were when I was growing up, especially you can just watch some old, you can watch some old TV, and you're like, wow, we used to find this funny, or wow, this was normal, the way that they're talking about black people. I mean, even, even in 2019, before Black Lives Matter happened globally, I think Black Lives Matter completely has fun fundamentally changed the way black people are seen all over, black and brown people are seen all over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that that's a really good thing. And I think that I've had white friends come to me and finally get it, literally be like, I get it now. And then I've had, um, I remember Shelley Manson from Garbage when I interviewed her for my podcast, she was like, I, I, I didn't, I, now I understand what you were up against back in those days. 
you know, and back in those days, we were kind of like almost competitors. And now I realize that it was such a much harder game for you than we, we ever believed. Yeah. I think um, it has opened a lot of people's eyes, you know, George Floyd, and it's obviously been so upsetting and traumatizing for, for everybody, really, what, what happened mm. there. But do you feel like, like some good has come out of it? Because I'm, I'm certainly, you know, halfway through trying to read um, why I'm no longer talking to white oh, yes, people yes, about yes. race, which is a fantastic yeah. book. And I've, you know, you know, like to think of myself as a non-racist, but I've learned so much from reading that book and really well, I, understood I think, a lot more. I think we've got to kind of get out of this attitude of like, you know, because I mean, everyone has racism in, in us. You know, we mm. all have different kinds of prejudices and judgmental things. And I think we've got to get away, step away from this kind of thing of like, saying I'm not racist, because that's kind of impossible on, on many fronts. It's, it's a, an impossible thing. It's kind of like, you know, being a fish and saying, oh, I, you know, I, I don't like water. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's, it, you're surrounded by it and it's in everything that you do in ways that you don't like and, and ways that you didn't even see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think that it's, I think the thing is, one thing that I've learned is that being it's about accepting everyone as being different to yourself. I think there's two ways that you can step to people. You can step to people in a positive way or a negative way. And I think we've just got to be a much more open and step to people in a kind of positive way and see differences as like not bad and not evil, you know? And I think that what we're seeing now is a kind of, because um, the, the conversation about racism is really jumped ahead you know it's kind of that thing it's like it's like a stalemate for many years and then it suddenly jumps ahead it's like a bottle you know you're, you 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 get to that bottleneck and you're there in that bottleneck for 20 years and all of a sudden the court goes and woof mm. and things move really a much faster and much quicker pace and some people are like well you know i you know I, i'm just going to continue to believe that everything that i've believed instead of just thinking oh let's just be open to that and see it as a new way of thinking about it i feel mm. the same way about trans politics you know it's like that has been coming for a long time um and it's people are like oh it's too fast it's too fast it's like no people have been waiting for decades for trans politics to be on the table and be talked about and for gender identity to be talked about um and so it's it i think that's what's happened in the last couple of years i think that the conversation has been had and in some ways it's a little irritating that there's a lot of black and white about it in terms of like if you don't believe this then you're that if you don't believe that then you're this we're more separated than we've ever been in terms of having political opinions and there's less discussion there's just a bunch of opinions sometimes and you're like can you just like stop seeing things in simplistic ways and work out that most people are sitting in that gray area This is Comfortable in Her Skin on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Emma Goswell and I'm in conversation with Skin. A little birdie has told me that you've had a bit of a a jet setty type of lockdown, but you are in London at the moment, aren't you? In front of a beautiful white piano and a beautiful picture of Elton John. (laughs) I am. He's there for inspiration. Um, I I spent most of my lockdown in New York with my partner, Lady Fag, and um, I, I literally got there... Four hours before they closed the border and closed everything, I got my American visa that morning, jumped on a plane and I was there at 10 o'clock at night and I think they closed at 12. So I spent most of my lockdown, um, which was nice because um, I would have been on my own, so I spent it with my partner. Um, we, you know, we popped to England in the middle of it, went a bit, you know, for like about six weeks. Um, but yeah, we were mainly in New York, which was quite a... Um, 
quite an eventful time to be in New York, I would say. Let's say that. It's, well, it was um, quite scary, wasn't it? I remember seeing sort of the mass graves. And, and... Um, yeah, it was, it was a, a, it, I guess it was a bit of a perfect storm because um, first there was COVID and lockdown and New York, because it's a port of entry, was quite, um, it was quite virulent there. You know, there, mm. it was quite a big, serious issue. And I guess it got to the summer and uh, the George Floyd incident happened where he was murdered and um, that just... Everybody, I think it was just a perfect storm of like, people are locked in, people are unhappy, people are on the internet a lot more than they would normally be, social media. And then, you know, this George Floyd thing happened and that just kind of escalated because people saw how often it was happening and what a big mm. issue is. And people were on the streets and then they had a curfew and then there was violence and then it was, um, yeah, it just kind of exploded. I mean, there were cars burning at the bottom of our street. And, uh, and you know, the weirdest thing that happened in New York at that time was um, mm. the kids got into this thing of letting off fireworks all night, every night. It just became a thing. They and were bored, weren't they? Yeah. Or was it, it or was, was it anger at the system, do you think? I you know, it just became a thing that they were just letting off fireworks. So literally four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock, you'd just been woken up by explosions outside your door. So that kind of made everything even a bit more tense. I think July the fourth it kind of died down, but mm. it was just this big thing that happened and we couldn't wait to get out. So we escaped to um to Ibiza because I have a house there. Um, and then, that, that, and then got back. That is the perfect antidote, though, isn't it? A nice. Was it in the summer or was it sometime in the winter? Nice and chilled in Ibiza. Um, it was. We went for the summer, so uh, yeah. I mean, I was kind of desperate to see my mom and my family, and uh, and then we were just we just needed some outdoor space, you know, mm. walks in the you know mountains and the field and the forest and all that kind of stuff. I think. Um, I think everybody's aware of how important nature was and how important being outside is. Um, well, and um, in New York, we have a nice place, but it's um, it's there's no outdoor space to it. So uh, it was well, that's it. And just getting our daily walks was a major achievement, wasn't it? Really, during, exactly. During and, and you know, I like to run, and they were like, "You got to run in a mask." I'm like, "How is that going to work? No. How am I going to run in a mask?" So no. um, and then they, we weren't allowed in parks, and so yeah, it was quite um, it's quite a mad summer. Hasn't very, it? Very mad summer. And on another note, you know, if you can survive all of that with your partner without having to go out the house or, you know, spending all of that time just locked in a house together, then that's a good sign, right? That's that's going well. Yeah, it's make or break, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah, we then. actually got um, engaged at the end of it because we thought, well, if we can do that, then we can do anything. So, um, yeah, that, that was a nice part. I mean, I think that, you know, you'd have the odd, odd row, which was more to do with tension, but Justin, yeah. if you can spend that amount of time with, with someone else and, and it's still be fun and and hilarious and you know have a good time then you know i think that's that's that was a plus side of it that was a silver lining that i know that many people didn't have if i'm right according to her instagram you're the one that proposed on valentine's day is that right i did yeah mm. oh did she let one out let that one out yeah i, I did, think um, she did yeah in, we were in montreal actually we were in montreal in the snow and oh. uh, it was really cold outside yeah, so I you was, are a I, romantic I a, then. I was a romantic one, but she wasn't going to ask me anyway because she's a bit girly like that. <laughs> <laughs> so did you get down in the snow on one knee and all that? Uh, no, no, I'm keeping the details to myself, but we, it wasn't outside, it was inside. It was too cold. It was like literally minus 15. We no. had to buy a whole new set of clothes just to be able to do anything. <laughs> 
Yeah, people underestimate just how cold it gets in Canada. I went to it's- Toronto once and it was like, oh, it's a really mild winter until the day I arrived and it was minus 12 and it, then it went down it was from freezing. that. I mean, it was literally, you couldn't have any part of your skin exposed because it would freeze. It was quite, it was quite a moment. I loved it though. I love snow. I like being cold in that way. I prefer being cold than being hot. If it's like a hot, sunny beach, I'm like the person under the umbrella in the shade. See, that's interesting because my ex-girlfriend was from the Caribbean as well and she used to hate the cold and just go, but I'm from the Caribbean, I can't be in these temperatures. But you're not like that. (laughs) I think it's an age thing. You know, I used to always be cold and now I'm always hot. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that brings me on nicely to um, discuss the menopause. Well, I was going to bring it up at some point. (laughs) At that stage, sorry, I'm going really personal really quickly here. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's weird because it kind of crept up on me. I mean, I feel like I have a real Peter Pan complex, you know. Everyone's Mm. always telling me I don't look my age and, you know, and that's kind of compounded this kind of, thing in my head where I think I'm, you know, still 24 and just joining a band and stuff. And um, so it just kind of creeped up on me. And I remember getting really hot one day and then I saw something on telly and I was like, oh, hold on. And it literally hadn't occurred to me that it might be menopause or pre-menopause or perimenopause or anything mm. like that. I was just, and it hit me like a ton of, you know, bricks. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And then, um, yeah, and then I just went and did something about it and sorted myself out. And now I'm actually fine, completely fine. It is a shock though, isn't it? And I've just done an interview with um, someone called Karen Arthur who does a brilliant podcast called uh, Menopause While Black. Yeah. And she said she just had a new boiler fitted and she genuinely thought there was something wrong with her boiler because she just kept getting yeah. files. She's like, there's something wrong with this boiler. I'm going to have to ring the engineer and sort this out. It's, like, it's amazing how women just don't know what's going on in their And own also bodies. the black community don't really talk about it either. My, I, my, I had no training. My mum said nothing to me about it. Um, I had no idea. Um, and none of my friends, my kind of oldest friends, mentioned it or talked about it. I'm the one who's talked about it to them. I'm the one who's mentioned it to them. Um, because I now I know I can see. I mean, my eyes are opened. Mine eyes are opened. We're supposed to be talking about identity, but it is a thing <laughs> about identity as well, isn't it? Because our identity as women sort of changes mm. throughout our lives, doesn't it? And the whole thing about the menopause, it's like it's seen as a shameful thing, isn't it? Because yeah. you're seen as being not useful anymore. You can't procreate anymore. Even if you yeah. haven't had kids or never wanted kids anyway, it's seen as being sort of on the shelf and useless, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things in terms of how women are seen in our bodies that are kind of... Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the kind of stereotypical men um, are, are very um, obsessed about young girls. And we see this obsession with growing girls going throughout our, our, our communities and our, our world. And we see it in the press and we see this obsession with that's the prime part of our lives. And that's when we're perceived as being the best of ourselves. Mm. But we all women know that actually it's just not true. That's when men can manipulate us maybe a little bit easier. <laughs> we're used to be when we're that age. So maybe that's when they think that that's the Ugh. best age for us. Yeah, whereas um, we're just coming into our prime, aren't we now? Yeah, 50s. I mean, I feel that now I feel incredibly lively and I've learned a whole new bunch of stuff. I think you're, there's something that comes with it. There's um, number one, a no-nonsense-ness. You know, you've been there you've experienced it you're 50 something you're like okay no I'm not putting up with that anymore um and I think that with that comes a a succinctness and a wiseness to all of your ideas and your thought processes and I feel like I just get a lot more done because I don't have to I don't mess around worrying about what everyone's going to think you know I'll I'm much more kind of direct with what I want to do and how I want to do it yeah I think we do what we want we don't want to be sexualized we just want to get on with our lives don't we really and just create and be yeah, we want our women. parts we want our parts partners to fancy us you know and, and I think our perception I think we we 
there's a difference between feeling sexy and feeling great and being sexualized, which is almost mm. like it's taken away from you and handed to men or handed to some other people. And you're like, actually, when did I, I didn't give that up to you. My own identity of being sexual, my sex, sexual politics is mine to behold. Um, and I think that um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that comes with age that you, you've just been there and seen it and you look and you think, okay, well, are we doing this again? Oh, we, you know, we're not doing this again, actually. I'm not putting up that. And I'm going to do it politely and with respect. Mm. Um, but it's it's a different kind of um, mentality, I think. I mean, the list of people that you've hung out with is like a who's who of like rock and roll and life, basically. Uh, they <laughs> include people like David Bowie, the Dalai Lama, Alexander McQueen, Grace Jones, Nina Simone, Annie Lennox, Pavarotti and Lemmy. Who was the most fun? Uh, fun. Pavarotti mm. was really fun, I have to say. He's a naughty boy. Really? Um, Nina Simone was really fun. We drank a lot. Um, David Bowie was just delicious to be around. Um, so much class. It's, I, you know, the, it, different people at different times of my life, you know. Um, and I'd probably say Lemmy was the most fun, actually, because <laughs> he's just a fun guy. Um, and that guy was probably the most authentic being on earth. You know, he just was just talked about what he wants to talk about. He had a really lovely, good heart. Um, he had this reputation of this like badass, you know, rock singer mm. that loved to walk around in German boots. But actually he was just really, he was a very um, open, good, delicate, lovely man that you could sit and have a deep conversation with about love. He really was. Um, and so I would say in hindsight, he was one of the most fun people. But, you know, I've had a lot of fun times with a lot of fun people. So it's it's it's, it's a hard question it's, to answer. It's a hard question to answer. It's easier to pick up people who have not had fun with than people oh. I've had. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he was comfortable in his own skin anyway. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he liked what he liked, you know, and uh, and he just like could see through it. He could just see through people really mm. just want He had that a natural talent for um, just seeing people who feel who they truly were well before you go i do want to ask you if you've got any advice because i feel like you would be a brilliant agony aunt actually <laughs> i'd um, love to so, be an agony aunt yeah, that'd be a good one can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> yes i can actually but what <laughs> advice would you give to people now then who may be struggling um with their identity maybe their sexual identity maybe their gender identity to make them be comfortable in their own skin like, like you've become well the main thing i would say is um don't rush Take your time and you don't have to work everything out because identity, identity sexual identity and gender identity is fluid. It, it, mm -hmm. we, we know this, it changes. It's my, my, my sexual identity has changed many times, you know. Um, you identify as queer now, is that right? Because it just cover, it covers, it just copes with everything. It covers everything. You know, I've been, I've never been straight. So mm. that's why I say queer. But there's been times when a bit more lesbian, a bit more bisexual, a bit more this, a bit more that. Um, so when I say queer, it just kind of covers it. I'm mm. basically I'm not straight. Because mm. um, a lot of people have problems with that word. I spoke to a person earlier today actually who said I can't bear hearing it. I had my head bashed against the side of a toilet as a child at school, and they shouted that word at me. I can't abide it now. Well, you know, mm. I think that you know you got that. That's really a very personal thing, and I think that mm. that's in many ways why we have to take all these words back and make them just not give them such a negativity. The word liberal, for instance, why is that the negative word? It's not a negative word. The left wing, you know, all these things. Mm. Um, woke. Don't uh, even get me started on woke. Oh, God. <laughs> 
don't even start with that. But the point of it is, is that I think that for me, my advice would be take your time, um, tell one person who you trust. Don't be like going around the houses saying, oh, I'm this, I'm that, and blah, 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 and then have something that you have to stick to. Um, and I just, because the reason why I say take that, take your time is because it's important to be strong. Um, because you're going to have to weather a lot of negativity. I mean, nowadays people are much more cooler in terms of sexual politics than they used to be. Um, but I would say just take your time and don't feel pressured by wokeness or by conservatism or by anything. Just have one friend and one person that you trust that's in your world that you can turn. You can just have that one person to confide in and nobody else. You know, there's a lot of politics about, you know, you've got to stand up and do this and stand up and do, you know, I would say like, if you're standing on quicksand, you can stand up for this stuff. But if you're standing on quicksand, you're just going to sink if you're not strong enough to hold up all these other things. So wait until you feel like you're standing on concrete, then you can help other people and you can stand up for things. Um, Because there's a lot of ways to tear you down that are very sensitive and you might not recover. So this is why I always say, Take your time, feel strong in yourself, feel um, powerful, confide in one person so you have one person to spill the beans to. Um, and then when you're ready, you're ready, you'll know. Yeah. I feel like we've gone very deep skin, haven't we? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's been amazing to hang out with you. Ah, thank you. On Virgin Radio Pride. <laughs> what a life, eh, skin? What a life you've led. Well, you know, someone's got to spend it. <laughs> if I didn't make it and sell all those millions of records, then who did? <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for your time this evening. It's really it's really been genuinely lovely to talk to you. And it's been uh, lovely to talk to you, and I'm happy that Virgin has a gay station. I mean, how cool is station? That's, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Comfortable in Her Skin with me, Emma Goswell, with none other than the skunk and Nancy frontwoman herself on Virgin Radio Pride.